This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. Thanks to everybody who was patient with me last week when I freaked out and had the almost disaster down here, but it ended up working out as best as it possibly could. I'll tell the whole story at the end. I don't want to waste anybody's time now. So let's jump into the questions and then I'll swing back around to it. First up, over on Floatplane, RetroShawn had a question about modern TVs with modern HDMI signals and audio amplifiers, which is something I'm actually pretty deep into a project on right now. So the bad news is there is no easy fix for this. It's a pretty huge hole in the market and uh, trying to fill that hole with a couple of new products, but I do have workarounds for you. So here is the overall situation. You have modern TV and modern consoles that run 120 hertz and VRR, but you don't have a SPDIF output on your TV. So there's no digital audio out on your TV, which is something that more TVs are lacking because it's, there's a lot of reasons why, but partially because you can't have full uncompressed uh, 7.1 and up audio channels through it. Also because less equipment is supporting it. Mostly it's going over HDMI. Plus I'm sure there's some bureaucracy in there like there always is. So how do you get the audio out? So it's pretty easy to think of something like, well, I'll take the 120 hertz stuff and plug it directly into the TV and then plug everything else through one of the switches that I just reviewed into the other one. But what about audio then? How do you deal with that? Do you have to buy a switch where you plug everything in and get the audio from that? Do you have to upgrade your receiver? And all of those things would work. They do have more modern switches. In fact, one's on my list. It's pretty expensive, so I'm going to hopefully wait till it goes down in price. But by the end of the year, I'll, I'll do another follow-up HDMI shootout video and stuff like that with 120 hertz VRR stuff. But there is a, a combination of things you could do now. First, plug the ARC HDMI port into an ARC audio extractor. The one I reviewed in that video was terrible, but there are ones exactly like it. And in fact, there are more expensive ones. Like uh, I believe Sean had a link to one on thenaudio.com. That looks pretty cool. So you're able to get the audio that way, but then what do you do with it? You're going to need to do I would strongly recommend if you're going through the trouble of upgrading your audio and you want to use existing stereo equipment, I would then recommend getting a good DAC. The Shipmodi 3, and I swear that's actually the name of the place or of the thing, but that's one I've tested that sounds more expensive than it is. Now you could do some do-it-yourself do versions of DACs that are pretty comparable. You could spend thousands of dollars on DACs, but I like that one when it's in stock. It's fairly priced. It's under 200 bucks. So you would essentially first have to have an ARC box. Then you would have to, that takes HDMI ARC and converts it to SPDIF. Then you would have to take something like the Shipmodi and go from SPDIF to left and right channel audio. And then you would have to run that into your other receiver. So it absolutely does work, but it's not going to be as fluid a solution as 
plugging everything into a 120 hertz VRR receiver and using that as a switch. But I don't ever like doing that because I don't always want to use my stereo. I actually just wrote a script for a video about this now, but I honestly and very strongly think you should only turn your stereo on when you want to. Now, there's obviously some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you're watching this video right here. Don't turn your stereo on. It's just me droning on and hanging out with friends in the Q&A section. There's no reason to have upgraded audio. But when this is over, you go to turn on a, a TV show or a movie. Yeah, turn on your stereo. So I do like having external solutions and just using receivers as receivers. And it's, it seems like a waste because a lot of the modern ones have multiple HDMI inputs, but it's not generally what I would like to do in these situations. So my suggestion for you now is try to just figure out a way to extract everything one piece at a time. And the only other thing that you might want to look into is either have a USB cable, because most of these um, ARC audio extractors are just USB powered, have a cable with a power switch built in line or have one with a switch on it for this exact reason. That way, when you turn the ARC device off, your TV just works normally. And when you turn the ARC device on, then you could just use uh, your stereo receivers remote and go from there. But I'm going to stop here because I could probably talk for another half hour about this and I have some ideas on how to fix it. There's some do-it-yourself solutions we're thinking about. Uh, there's a company that's considering making something to solve this issue. So I'd like to just kind of put a pin in this and come back to it. But if I got your question wrong or if you have any other things that you, you're worried about, Sean, please just let me know and I'll take care of you. But I think that's a basic overview for now and using ARC to extract audio and then other converters down the line should be fine. And like Artemio and I proved in that other stream a few weeks ago, any digital audio converter that doesn't have, that's not junk should be zero difference. So if you're talking two channel audio going from ARC to SPDIF, and then of course to analog, you shouldn't have to worry about the two digital sides. And as far as down mixing, just set the settings in your TV to have always 2.0 channel output. Some don't support that, but most should, but uh, I think that sums it up. So let me know if I missed anything, please. Next up, over on Patreon, Andrew Shabilsky had a question about the Pi to Scart Raspberry Pi hat. So it's one of those hats that plugs into the Pi 3 and 4 that could get RGB Scart out of it. And their goal is to watch videos streamed over their network. And they're pretty technically inclined, but they cannot get it working. So do I or anyone in the community know of any good Kodi builds or INI files that they could just drag and drop and get it going? I'm pretty sure Recallbox now has the option to either boot directly into Kodi or to boot to Kodi first, and then you could go into Recallbox second. So if you want it as a main video player, but also to play emulation on it, you could reverse it and do it that way as well. I tried it for a, a, a little bit, and it seemed to work, but I think it's in 240p, which, I mean, depending on your content, maybe that's totally fine, but... I think the goal for something like this would be able to get it to run in 480i when you're watching video and then 240p for gaming. So my suggestion is to check out Recallbox, check out their forums, uh, Discord server, whatever else, because since that is something that's already built into it and they already have their hat, which, I mean, their software should be compatible with everything, but they basically have been down this road. So everybody there is going to know or people there are going to run into the same problems you are. So I would definitely do that. 
If you get it working, let me know because I keep meaning to do a solution like that. Um, I have other ways of doing it using Blu-ray players and, and other stuff, but I kind of was hoping to work on a Pi solution as well, just out of curiosity. So please let me know what you find, but that's definitely the easiest place to start. And uh, thank you for the name pronunciation. You all know I'm terrible at that. I don't mean to be, but thank you. Oliver Clare had a couple of long questions this week. I read every single word of them, but just in the interest of everybody's time, I'm going to skip to the end. Oliver wants a matrix switch setup for a brand new from scratch setup that they're building in a new house, but they already purchased G-Comp and G-SCART switches and they already have the cables. So they were kind of wondering what's the best way to go about doing that while also adding matrix functionality. And their guess is 100% correct, in my opinion, run those into a Extron crosspoint. So you basically just take the output of both and you put in the inputs of that, and then you could use the outputs of those to go to whichever devices that you want, including possibly even doing loopbacks. I still haven't quite figured that out. Been busy with other things, so I'll get to that next week. So that's pretty much it. You don't really have to worry about anything else because the GSCART switch and the GCOM switch will do the auto switching on that side. Then you, you could just manually switch which array that you want to put through into whatever monitor, and then you could kind of go from there. Um, a couple of other questions about this, though. Which model of Extron would they need to purchase to make the setup work? I would do any of the Extron crosspoint matrixes that have audio built in. Look for the blue connectors on the bottom. Um, you could switch audio a different way. I mean, if you're going into a receiver and your receiver has a bunch of RCA inputs, you could go use the second output on of the G-Comp and G-SCART to go into each input on the receiver and do it that way. So if that's the case, that would be easy. But if not, then uh, I would kind of just look for one with audio. Next, uh, what would I recommend as hookup solutions between all of these things? Um, either good shielded BNC cable or good shielded RCA cable. And what I did is use a couple of HD retrovision cables with BNC connectors on the end. Uh, and it seemed to work great. Because remember, just because those HD retrovisions say red, green, and blue for, you know, YPBPR plus red and white doesn't mean that you have to use it for that. It's a pass-through cable. You can put any signal you want. Now, you're going to want to label the cables or label your diagram or something to make sure that you remember what is what. But as long as you do that, it should be fine. Um, like in one example is in the back of my BVM, I have the YPVPR going to component video, but I use the audio left and right for Y and C for S video. And then I run the other ends to my Extron switch that way. And since it's tied together and it's going to the same BVM, it's very obvious to me. I didn't even label it. So... That's just an example, but good shielded cables either way, and using uh, using these cheap RCA to BNC cables. In, in the scenario that you're talking about, I would buy a giant bag of them and then connect everything up, wiggle all the cables, and if you get any uh, screen blinking or anything like that, figure out which it is, throw it out, and buy another one. People get so upset when I say that, but I would so much rather have you spend... 10 bucks on a bag of 100 or 20 bucks or whatever it is and have to throw out two or three then spend four dollars each on these things and yeah they're perfect but if it works there's no difference using it with oscilloscopes and stuff like that there may be differences but for what you're doing and what i do and that setup back there zero difference as long as they work and hold a connection so you'd save a lot of money just getting the cheap ones and tossing whatever doesn't work like significant amounts of money here um, next, 
They were told that it's not safe to output RGB from an Extron to anything other than a PVM without attenuating the sync line with a 470 ohm resistor. That is a very good practice. The slightly more correct version is output to any SCART devices because almost everything that has RGBS inputs should be able to, should be labeled, so you should know, but I like that people worded it that way. That is definitely the, the proper way. So if you want those made, you can contact RetroAccess. I believe WookieWin on eBay could do custom stuff like that. Should be easy and it should be cheap. And it also should be one of those things that even if you're not into soldering at all, you should be able to just find a buddy with a soldering gun to be able to get that in. It's one of the easiest things you could do. And on the flip side, while I always strongly recommend that for if people have one or two things only that they need soldered, that they just send it to a professional because you'll spend less to have a pro do it than you would to buy all the equipment. This might be one of those cases where buying a cheap soldering station and some solder might actually be might might actually help. I would look into it if Retro Access is able to do it on the quicker side, or uh, it's possible that Retro Gaming Cables in the UK offers them this way. You're going to have to check their site. They should though, uh, but a lot of the cable manufacturers should be able to do this for you, and you could verify yourself with a multimeter. Which even if you're not into soldering, spending eight bucks on a multimeter is absolutely a worthy thing. And then you just press the two ends together and measure. Uh, and if it just beeps, there's nothing on the line. And if you see something around 470, it means it's about a 470 ohm resistor. They all have tolerances, so it could be 500, it could be 400, but as long as it's in between there, that should be more than enough. Um, and lastly, they're wondering if it would be easier to just stick a couple of Mike Cheese RGB to comp transcoders on the GSCART to Extron connections and sidestep any of these issues to just keep everything as component video. It's all about your target devices. So back there, I'm going to have a mixture of signals. And in fact, no matter what I end up doing, I'm always going to have to have some kind of component in RGB. So if I swap some monitors around and get rid of all my component video monitors, I would probably do just that. I would probably have all of the component video stuff going to a G comp switch. So PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, you know, Xbox, whatever, Wii and then do exactly what you're doing. But I would probably put the, that stuff into the uh, comp to RGB into the cross point and then kind of go from there. But because I'm always going to have some kind of component video monitor display solution as well, I do need to, uh, you, you could do loopbacks, but I'm going to need to program those in. So uh, lastly, would I know, or sorry, I, I skipped the last question for this one. Uh, would I know if light gun games would work properly over this network? Scenario would be a PS2 connected to the G comp switch, then uh, connected to the Xtron, then reconverted back from that to composite over to a regular, or no, just going through that to a regular consumer grade CRT. So Two important points. No switch that you've talked about here would change the signal in any way other than possibly sync voltage. So light guns will not be affected at all in any way, including through the converters. The only time it might be an issue is if you were in from component to RGB back to component. And even then, I'm not I'm not sure if that would be an issue or not. So that should all be fine. Um, but, you know, that's one of those other things that you might want to double check on your personal setup just in case, you know, run something from the component video into RGB onto a monitor and see if that works. But I, I'm pretty sure you should be fine. 
Oliver's second set of questions are related to downscaling. So, uh, and broken into a couple of parts. So they remember in the Retron 5X video, I used a generic HDMI to component converter from Amazon for downscaling a Wii, and this worked well with no lag. They were wondering if a generic HDMI to BNC converter for the Xtron would work well also, or should they convert the HDMI to SCART or component and then send it one of the switches further back up the chain. So BNC is a connector, not a format. So that could mean it was anything. Uh, if you meant HDMI to VGA, that would work, but then you're going to have to combine RGBHV to RGBS if you're going into one of those. So I would probably stick with component for those just to make it easier. But if you were able to, uh, or needed to route all of this stuff together, you could easily go HDMI to VGA and then just use something like an HD15 to SCART. Next, they were watching the HDMI shootout video about the switch with downscaling versus the switch with audio extraction. They've watched it a bunch of times and couldn't figure out which option for either is correct with this setup. Uh, so before I even continue to read it, if you're not sure, then figure out which which you need built in, if any. You could just go get yourself like a 20-port HDMI switch with only one output and then stick that one output to a splitter. Or if matrix switching really is your the most important thing and you need audio extraction, but you also need to pass Dolby Atmos and Arc, get the one with the downscaling built in, but then output that to an HDMI audio extractor or something like that. So, uh, but I'll keep going. Since there's 20 to 25 HDMI devices, uh, only three do 4K120, and both of the switches have four outputs that might involve using a half dozen of these matrix HDMI switches together. All right, so you need to decide right now between cost and convenience. You could absolutely get yourself matrix switches that could handle VRR and 120 uh, for thousands, or you could get yourself a switch that handles almost all of those formats up to 4K60, but with like 20 inputs for a couple hundred bucks, then get yourself a second, one of those newer HDMI switches that handles VRR and 120. Uh, a three or four port switch might be two or 300 bucks. And then you could kind of route those as needed. Um, you could do the audio extraction with those or without those, but you're really going to have to wonder or have put a lot of thought into how much money and if that's worth it. Because one, like, I guess one of the things that is always makes this more complicated, some stuff's always going to be expensive. So if you're like, oh, do I spend two grand on an awesome AV receiver now? Or do I just spend 300 bucks now and then spend two grand later? If you're building this setup from scratch and this is going to be your forever setup, spend the money now and never think about it again. But on the flip side, if you're talking about something like a 4K120 VRR matrix HDMI switch, that might be two grand now. And that same switch with the exact same functionality might be 500 bucks a year or two from now. So that's completely different. So you're really going to need to decide, do you just drop the cash and not worry about it until you switch to 8K240 or whatever comes next? Um, or do you want to mix and match now, knowing that these are HDMI formats that are constantly going to be evolving? It's no right answer. It's whatever is the right answer for your setup. Uh, so I think 
I think that kind of sums everything up. But uh, for anybody listening, Oliver's building a really awesome setup. So there's probably going to be a lot more of these lengthy questions. And I love it because even respectfully, even if you don't care about somebody else's setup, you could imagine this all in your mind for what your dream setup might be, whether you eventually want to build a rack or you just have one rolling cart with a couple of consoles on it, which I'll be doing a video about soon. Love those things. Um, Either way, you could apply everything that we talk about in these setups to your own. So hopefully they're still entertaining to listen to. A very interesting question from Heyaso. They have a mister with an IO board and RGB output set up into a Versus City cabinet. So one of the CRT-based ones. Uh, I guess they must have used some kind of video amplifier in order to get that to the proper levels. Um, and... On the other side of it, they have like a Versus City modern cabinet, like a Vulix style with a flat panel in it, and they have an HDMI going to that. And in their video, it looked like the HDMI is uh, connected to a splitter, so one end goes to that cabinet in 1080p, I'm assuming, the other one goes to their capture card, and that way it's like a head-to-head -head cabinet setup, and they're playing against each other, but one on a modern monitor, one on a CRT. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. It looks really cool. Definitely check out the, the Twitter post on that. Um, but they wanted to now try to unite two candy cab machines, so like a, a real versus cab, uh, kind of like I always show the video at Brooklyn Arcade, where there's the two cabs stuck together and outputting the same thing. So when you're battling against each other, you all you sit on your own side with your own control panel, which is awesome, by the way. Um, but they realized that they could use direct video for one and I.O. board for the other, but they still need to stream. So my suggestion is first check what tools you already have access to. If you have an HDMI splitter that will work with direct video, a lot won't, they just don't know what the signal is. You could send one, uh, so you could take the HDMI out into the splitter, send one into the digital to analog converter and then into your other cabinet and then take that other HDMI output and plug it into your capture card, which will get like a, I think it's like a 1920 by 240 signal or something. Whatever it is, you then just use OBS to scale it. Uh, I think they call it point scaling. I don't think they call it nearest neighbor, but, and that's pretty much the exact same thing. That would work if you already have that. But there's a few other things that might be better in your scenario, especially if you ever wanted to set up a third monitor or if your splitters don't accept that weird fake 240p signal, which is perfect on CRTs, but could cause problems with HDMI devices. The other thing that you might want to do is look for something like an Extron box that has one VGA in and two VGA outs. Then you just use a VGA cable from the Mistress I.O. board, and then on the other side, pull RGBS from the VGA connectors. That Any kind of VGA distribution amp type of scenario will work fine. You can get used Extron stuff very cheap on eBay, although who knows what the shipping will be, so, you know, really... The total solution is going to be whatever's easiest and cheapest for you, but both of those should work. Either split the direct video HDMI output uh, using an HDMI splitter and then a DAC, or split the VGA signal. I know it's 240p, 15 kilohertz, but take that VGA connector and get a VGA distribution amp and then use the splitter that way and then amplify it to both cabinets that way. I think that would also work as well. So uh, very cool looking setup. And uh, uh, let me know if you have any other questions, but I think both of those should point you in the right direction. Virtually Retro wants to know what I think of Repro 
Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance carts? Is there any reputable source for high-quality repros? They'd love to expand the collection, but some games are too expensive or too beat up to justify buying. Um, So this is my personal opinion. This is not fact in any way, shape, or form. But my opinion on repros of all kinds like that is I almost never buy them because it's a weird gray area. So you go online, you download every game for every console pre-year 2000, and you buy a ROM cart, and you're using a mix of retail games that you've now technically stolen and homebrew that, you know, maybe it's freeware, maybe you paid for it, maybe you own the original, but this is a ROM hack, whatever it is. But basically, the only people profiting from that are the ROM cart makers who have every legitimate real reason to make those. Whereas when you're paying for repro carts, you're doing a couple of things that I don't like. First of all, somebody is just flat out making money off of somebody else's intellectual property. Now, there are definitely some gray areas. Let's say you have the Japanese version of a Saturn game that was recently translated to English and somebody makes a beautiful English box for it. And, you know, you already own that game. But now you just want the one to play in your U.S. Saturn, you know, with a nice burn CD on there or something. You're, they're still profiting off of other people's IP, but it's gray. It's a gray area. You know, it's not the same. Whereas somebody that just makes repro carts like, oh, uh, Musha is an expensive game, so I'm just going to make a bunch of Musha carts and sell them. That's just kind of stealing. And the trolls love to come at me. Oh, it's the same thing. You're using a ROM cart. You're a thief either way. It really isn't. Legally, it kind of is, and if you really have no life and want to spend your time trolling like that, sure, go for it, but morally, it's very different, Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to come down on you hard. It was a very, very uh, respectable question. I'm just sharing my opinions. On the technical side of things, you never know what you're getting with a repro either, so even if it was one of those scenarios where it was, you know, you owned the original, but the label was beat up, you don't have the box, it's card only, and you just wanted a really nice repro of it, what are you getting? Is the plastic of decent quality? If it's a different size, is it going to mess up your console? Is the edge beveled? Is the PCB the exact correct size? If both of those are wrong, you could destroy your console pretty quickly. There's just, there's too much at stake for me to ever risk that. So my personal opinion is I almost never would consider buying a repro. Obviously, there's a couple of scenarios, which I, so a couple of which I just mentioned that are totally fine. But in general, for any console, I wouldn't do that just because it, everything about it doesn't feel right, whether it's the safety of the cartridges, whether it's the morality of it. Um, I would just get a ROM cart because those just open up possibilities for so many things. I mean, I've bought Legend of Zelda on Super Nintendo a couple of times in my life, but now I will only play the DX version because it's just it's a lot of quality of life improvements that are kind of make it more fun. The little tiny things that, you know, I wouldn't hate it if they weren't there, but it's very cool that they are. Same with Super Metroid and a bunch of others. So, and that is legal. I own that game. I, you know, I put the ROM on there. I, I have the patch attached to it. So that's kind of my, my opinion on that. But you don't have to agree with me. And, you know, you, you could do whatever you'd like. I just wanted to share my own thoughts because I think repros get a little weird and a little shady sometimes. Sal's been wondering for the past 20 years, why is using a VCR the only viable option to convert RF to composite? It seems to me this could easily be done with a Tink Mini-sized device. Um... So it can, but the answer is cost. So those VCRs that were made were made in quantities of like 100,000. So those RF boxes on them, that circuit that converts that and remodulates it back to composite video, 
those are expensive unless you're making them in quantities of like a hundred thousand. So right now you could walk into a Goodwill anywhere in the U.S. and pick up a VCR for five bucks probably. And even if it eats tapes and doesn't work as a VCR, you now have a five dollar solution that is your RF modulator in there. So or demodulator, I always get those confused, but. You could also just get that really nice Sony device that Steve from RetroTech did a video on that's essentially that. It's a very nice, higher quality RF box, and they make remotes for it. If analog TV signals were still out, I know there's still some floating around, but if that was still a thing, you could even use this to, you know, as a TV tuner type of thing as well. And there are other devices like that, but no one makes them new because if you started like that now, made one brand new, it, first, are, are there even those devices, new old stock laying around, or would you have to strip them from old VCRs? It might actually be impossible to make that brand new, but even if you could, or even if you wanted to spin up manufacturing on these things, it would be really expensive. And it would be at the point where enthusiasts might pick it up, but not a lot. It's not when you're talking like near free or free used for a VCR versus potentially a couple hundred bucks, even a hundred bucks. I think most people would say no. So to answer your question, why is it the only viable option? Because of money. That's that's really it. So if you want to spend a few extra bucks, check out Steve from RetroTech's video on that Sony TV tuner. It looks cool as hell, especially if you have a PVM. It's smaller. It's not so much smaller than a VCR, but it's definitely smaller. Um, and that should be fine. But on the flip side, if there's ever a chance of you watching a, v a VCR, VHS tape, which mostly, mostly not, mostly they're terrible. I'll have a video on that by the end of the year. But there is the occasional reason. I watched I Love Lucy, uh, one of those episodes I got for like a dollar uh, at one of these. Um, I think I got it at like Retro Games Plus in Orange. And it was perfect. It was exactly what I would have wanted in that experience. But it's not very common. But it's there. So if you have any desire to ever watch a VHS tape, I would just stick your console on top of the VCR, wire them together, and now you have one solution for both. But just my thoughts on that. And uh, yeah, money is really the, the main option. One more from Sal. One of the few things they want for their collection that they don't have is a 3DO. They're not going to go down the physical media collecting road for it at this point. They just want the best possible RGB and ODE setup that you could get in 2022 or coming soon. Please tell me what's best to get. FC1, FC10, which mods? So this is all uh, half opinion, half fact. The best ODE is the one that I uh, Fixel is making. Um, I believe they opened up a second round of pre-orders, so I could, uh, I'll leave the link in the description to the post on that. Uh, the post has all the info you need, but there's plug-and-play and internal versions. So my opinion, even if you have no desire of collecting physical media, if that optical drive works in the one that you're getting, I would buy the more expensive external version and you have the option and you don't have to cannibalize a 3DO. But on the flip side, if you end up buying a working 3DO for cheap with a dead CD drive, then th there you go. That's your solution. Take the CD drive out, put the internal version in, and you're totally done. Now, as far as what mods to get, here's where my opinion is on this. I just plan on using S-Video from 3DO. Uh, going into a CRT, it's going to look excellent. Going, to look, or going into something like a RetroTINK 5X, still going to look awesome. However, there is one scenario, two scenarios, in which I would strongly recommend going RGB instead. Number one, you already invested in a really expensive BVM, so what the hell, why not? Add RGB to it, get that little extra boost, and it's awesome. Uh, retro, um, 
I'll leave the link to the the store that's still selling it. Uh, it's the UK based store, so uh, I'm pretty sure they're the only ones still selling it. And Adam does a great job with that stuff, so I'll, I'll leave a link just in case you want that. And that kit also switches between 240p and 480i. Now, the other scenario, of course, is if you're in an all RGB setup. So you got a GSCART switch with seven SCART RGB SCART consoles plugged in, and now you're looking to integrate a random S video thing then in my opinion, it's definitely worth it to also do the RGB mod just so you could add it to your existing setup and have a no no mess thing. Now, that's going to be up to you. The one mod that I would definitely recommend, regardless of if you're doing S-Video or RGB or anything like that, is the 240p 480i mod. That comes standard on some Japanese models. You could add it to, I believe, all of them. And if you remove... Uh, I believe if you remove the RF box, it's a perfect no-cut mod that you could always just put back the way it was, should you ever want to, for whatever reason. But most of those games look better in for, in 240p. They have that classic look. Some look better in 480i. I thought Night Trap or any FMV game looked better in 480i. Wolfenstein runs too fast uh, and out of this world, I think. So there's a few games where you kind of have to run or would really want to run it in 480i. But I think that is a mod that is absolutely worth your time. As for which is the best to get, the cheapest that still works, meaning, you know, just like I explained, maybe you got a dead drive that you can get it super cheap. I would just double and triple check the installation guides because I believe there was one model that couldn't have the RGB mod done. And I think the 240p mod could be done on all of them, but I'll leave links to all of that. So hopefully that kind of sums everything up. Patricia Sands just bought two PS3 Slim consoles and their plan is to jailbreak both with the idea of connecting them via system link for LAN parties. They don't have a NAS currently, but they want to replace the stock hard drive with something that's going to last a long time. They were considering either a 2TB mechanical hard drive or a 1TB SSD. What option do I think would be better and why? I would always go SSD over mechanical now unless storage was really a thing. I just bought a couple of 20 terabyte store or hard drives that had to be mechanical because I need them to back up all the retro RGB stuff, all the other crap I'm working on. Um, so that was kind of a, a no brainer. You know, buying one of those expensive 20 terabytes is infinitely cheaper than trying to figure out how to put 20 one terabyte SSDs into something. Whereas in this situation, having something lighter, no moving parts, less heat, faster, which the PlayStation might not take advantage of the speed, but it's nice to have it there. So I would go with the SSD, definitely. Um, and if storage really became a problem, I would then just look into building a retro NAS setup and uh, maybe even getting a cheaper SSD and storing everything else on a Raspberry Pi and, you know, 8 terabyte or 16, 20 terabyte mechanical drive on the NAS itself. Also, are there any particular custom firmware or homebrew apps for the PS3 that I think would be a good idea to get? Uh, it's been a long time since I've messed with it. I know that uh, Lewis from Zez Retro uses a very cool app to stream media to it. Uh, so basically, any disc that's in I.O. format, it plays as if it was in the drive. Uh, there's a bunch of cool things that you could do with it that way. But basically, I would only I would really concentrate on playing your backups, playing homebrew, and whatever software is required for that. But I haven't had a lot of experience with that recently, so I'm going to do like a live stream one day, relearning how to do that and kind of talking about it with everybody. Lily Larceny wanted to know why there could be a difference between the latency test results published on the Blue Retro page versus the one from the Mr. Add-on sheet. And that is an excellent question. Um, it could be different firmware versions. 
Uh, it could be that the one on Mr. Add-on site was using like a Wii U Pro controller with an Amazon brand Bluetooth adapter and the Blue Retro one, the Blue Retro adapter itself might actually be faster or slower than that, depending on the configuration. So there, there's certainly a lot of things that could go wrong in that. I would have to really dig in deep and I still have the kit here. I would love to do that myself at some point. I got to just blow through my backlog and eventually that's on the backlog, but eventually I would love to have time to just test this stuff as the questions come in. I, don't know, I think that's a probably an unrealistic hope, but still... Um, so yeah, that's a really interesting one. I'd like to reach out to both to kind of figure that out because latency testing is finally becoming more mainstream because people are understanding what really goes into all of this. But at the end you, of your question, you asked the question, should we trust latency test people public or just take everything with a grain of salt? And I am a paranoid, untrustworthy nerd when it comes to all of this stuff. Uh, but however, I always take things into perspective. You know, Pork's been doing these lag tests since that kit was built. So everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody could just use the firmware that's available today, have a flawless result, and there's a new firmware out next week. But I generally just trust what Pork does because he's been doing it for a while, and a lot of people have been rechecking and coming up with the same results. Um, but I, that doesn't mean I don't trust Blue Retro, and that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a discrepancy somewhere. Uh, my personal thing, which people call gatekeeping, which I'm fine with, but if somebody who's never been in the scene before with no previous history of lag testing comes out and says, this has seven milliseconds of lag, I'm going to go, how did you find that? Whereas if Pork goes, I did my Mr. Test Kit and found seven milliseconds of lag, I'm going to go, all right, it's got seven milliseconds of lag. So yeah, I mean, that's I'm more than happy to be called a gatekeeper in that scenario because generally speaking, everybody that I've worked with ever in my life that would come out and say seven milliseconds and you ask, well, how'd you get that? If they actually put the real time in, not only are they happy to answer it, they're proud. They want to show like, oh, well, I got this kit and this high speed camera or I measured with this or, you know, sometimes they're wrong, but sometimes you got like, like Sir Sethery. I, I um, promoted his video a while back. I had never knew who that person was until somebody said, hey, what do you think of this video? I watched the video and went, I think they nailed it. And that was it. So technically I was gatekeeping, but I mean, I'm all right with that. That's fair. If I watched Seth's video and it was garbage, I'd have been like, no, it's garbage. I'm not talking about it. But it wasn't. It was great. So yeah, it's a good question. And I got a little silly towards the end with my answer, but I think hopefully that puts everything into good perspective. But you bring up a good point and I would love to double check all of these things. And I think also the people that put the time into doing this would love to be double checked as well, because if you come up with the same numbers, it's kind of awesome. It's like a big nerdy high five. So good question, Lily. I'm going to look into that too, because, um, you know, latency is important and we're finally paying more attention to it. Logan said they decided to get a Steam Deck and a Save the Hero ROM dumper to take their retro gaming on the go. Is there a way for them to cloud sync their game saves so they could pick back up where they left off on another device? Does RetroNAS have this functionality? Great questions. RetroNAS is going to be on the storage side. So while eventually that type of thing might be built in, you would still have to manually run it. So what I would start with is taking something like a Google Drive Sync or Dropbox. I don't know if those work on Steam Deck. I'm assuming they do, but I would take one of those and sync up your ROM save folders and try to do the same on your PC at home and then kind of go manually from there. 
At some point, RetroNAS might be able to do that, where you press a button and it syncs with Dropbox, but you'd have to press the button. But for things like, you know, Chris's ROM carts, Mr., whatever else, you're probably still going to have to take take out the SD cards and copy those over manually, which isn't too big a deal, but having some kind of automation on the RetroNAS side of things would be kind of cool at some point. Maybe it's programmed to hit Dropbox every 20 minutes or something, but, you know, I did IT style work for a while, and I get, you know, when you start doing all that, you get paranoid because it's part of your job to see everything that could go wrong in that chain. So let's say you have Dropbox syncing, so on your Steam Deck, the first thing that can go wrong, you're done playing your game, you hit save, you turn the Steam Deck off, you put the Steam Deck away, and you, you leave. What if it hadn't finished syncing to Dropbox? Or what if it did, and let's just say eventually RetroNAS has an auto-sync every 20 minutes, which I just made that up, it's not a thing yet, but let's just say it does. You're done playing your Steam Deck, you know, you leave it on and power it up on a charger or something, so it is syncing with Dropbox, and then you go, you make yourself dinner, you go start on your other device and start playing 19 minutes after so that it hasn't synced yet, and then the file on the local device is newer than the on the server, so then which one gets copied? I mean, it's, you know, I'm not saying it won't work, I'm just saying there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So I would start with Dropbox or Google Sync or any one of those software on the Steam Deck to your main PC, and handle it manually from there, and kind of just see what other options you could have at that point. If you're an IT person, you could run scripts or anything like that. Um, if you're just a fellow retro nerd, that's cool. Maybe just look in your Dropbox folder and verify the date. You know, if you just finished playing a game, and now you want to continue it on your mister, when the save game file is from two days ago, then you know that the date doesn't match and you need to resync. So I would kind of do that manually, but I would love to hear what other people do. Um, am I just being a paranoid nerd that is untrustworthy with the uh, automation or is, do other people have other methods or anything like that? I'm all ears. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say about that. Adam Adamant has a GameCube related question this week. They have one without a digital port that also has a bad disk drive and they were thinking of fixing it up and selling it bundled with a rad 2x now the question is how to go how do they go about doing this they have a spare disk drive and they also have a spare gc loader and they also have pico pies so do they replace this with a working drive install a pico mod chip and sell it as basically an original gamecube mod chipped with the rad 2x or do they add the gc loader um kind of what's the best way to go about doing that with the intention to sell? Because they already have three others with GC loaders and GC duels. Um, they obviously like GameCube and Four Swords. So what strategy do I think would be more user-friendly to a buyer who might not have a lot of mod knowledge and wants to buy something that just works? So I think if you're looking to sell this in a local modding community in your area and, and kind of get it out there to people you know, the first thing I would ask is, is anybody looking to, to do a couple of specific things. First, does anybody need a GameCube on a 15 kilohertz monitor? So they're playing Smash, they have a CRT they want to use, they don't have a VGA monitor, and uh, you know they don't need the digital I.O. port or digital output port, so they just want to hook it up to a TV. Perfect. Ask them what they would prefer, disc or D GC loader. You know, I had, This is the price for disc drive with the mod chip, this is the price for it with the uh, GC loader. Done. If people don't specifically want that, maybe somebody is really just looking for a good way to play Game Boy Interface. 
And if that was the case, um, you know, you might just want to leave the dead drive in, put a mod chip in it, and then throw in, you know, a SD to SP2 or something. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, or you could just kind of keep it for parts if you want. I mean, you're probably looking to sell it to get cash to do other things, which is understandable. So I would start by looking locally and seeing if you could fulfill a need for somebody. And that would answer all your questions for you. And, you know, the, the bigger community that you have access to, the more of a chance of having this happen. So, you know, if you're in a local community where you only know a handful of people that like GameCube and they are all already have one, this is kind of useless. But if you're part of modding groups or Facebook groups, Discord, whatever else, just simply asking, hey, does anybody need a GameCube to just use on an older CRT or specifically looking for Game Boy Interface 240p on an older CRT. Or I guess it doesn't even really need to be an older CRT. You could just use a S-Video cable and it's still excellent output. It's not as good as RGB or component or VGA or whatever HDMI would be, but it's still very, very good if you're looking for that method of playing Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, and Game Boy Color games. So I would try to let the customers decide and then figure out what you want to do after that. You could also make more money parting it out, selling, you know, selling the motherboard, the case, whatever else, you know, if, if that's the, if that's your goal is to be able to fund something else with this money, maybe that's the better way to do it. But I like the question. That was cool. And uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Much appreciated. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, when using a VGA CRT monitor, is AMD or NVIDIA better for compatibility for use with older cards. Um, I think AMD has been universally better for 240p. So if you're using like the stuff that Calamity worked on, like Groovy Arcade and stuff like that, find one of the video cards that's on that list so you could do 240p. If you're simply just talking about feeding 480p and up, so 640 by 480 Visa, not 480p DTV, but if you're just talking about feeding that to it, I would really just try to look for any card that still supports a VGA output. And if you don't have that ability, then I don't know if it really matters. I think you're going to have to go through a DAC at some point anyway. Um, maybe just look for any cards that, that specifically list analog output. Because like DisplayPort, sometimes on video cards, you could have VGA through the DisplayPort and all you need is a passive adapter and it's already supported and when you're talking about true digital display port that's not possible you would need a DAC essentially so i would look into that decide which card you want to use see what features and kind of go from there but i don't really know much about compatibility if you're just talking about sending 800 by 600 to a vga crt monitor that should all just kind of work. There's always some weirdness, something, you know, as you probably already run into, you're going to occasionally hit a sync issue. Some resolutions might be blurrier than others, even if they're higher or lower. It doesn't really make sense, but it's just kind of par for the course with PCs and CRTs. Second, they're trying to figure out how to help 30 frame per second console games run smoother on VGA monitors, particularly as it pertains to phosphor retention. They know certain things like RetroArch and most newer TVs can enable black frame insertion in software, but they've mostly only seen this used on 120Hz signals. Is there possibly some type of small HDMI dongle of kind or, or something like that that is only does BFI? No, I don't think there is, but that's a pretty cool idea. Um, so maybe a modern set-top processor like the old DVD-O units. If that did exist, it would be in the thousands, because that's what those went for in the early 2000s. Or do I think a better option would be to try converting to interlaced resolutions instead, like 1080i, for example? I'm never really a fan of doing that. 
Um, I think it would be neat to see what happens if you were able to, via software emulation, do send 30 frame per second games as 60 frame per second with a black frame in between them. That might be a fun experiment, but I really don't have any, any other ideas or thoughts on that. It's not something I really pondered before, and I don't know if it's a problem that could be solved that easily. I think rendering older games at higher frames per second via software emulation would probably be easier and kind of kind of a better solution overall, but I like where your head's at. I, I like... I like thinking out of the box like this because questions like this can sometimes translate to new ideas and products. So anybody have any thoughts on that? But for me personally, I think um, I think really it's probably best to go down the route of trying to render it in a faster speed on using software emulation and kind of see where you go from there. But that's still a pretty cool idea. So there might be a question missing on Patreon this week. Check this out. I click load more comments. Nothing happens. It says 14 out of 15 are showing. So, uh, yeah, I'm really sorry if somebody missed their question this week. I didn't hide it. It uh, It's Patreon being Patreon, so sorry about that. All right, so a ceiling update. If, uh, if you don't care about this, the Q&As are over. You know, thank you as always. But for people that were curious, everything I said last week was true. I really just sat here, and I was in the middle of recording a section, and I heard, like, knock. I just, I kept talking, knock, I'm thinking, all right, don't let your OCD get the better of you, it's probably a woodpecker outside, let it go, knock, oh, I can't take it anymore, so I hit stop, and I turned, I turned around to go, like, walk out and around the house to go see what the heck was banging on the wall, because we do have woodpeckers sometimes, and as I'm turning around, I saw the ceiling start to crack and water coming down, and that was the knock, was just big, thick water droplets hitting the ground, and I shit my pants. I was like, oh, this is it. You know, the house is ruined. All my stuff is ruined. So I ran around. I called the plumber. You know, I turned the water main off. I turned all of the faucets on on the bottom floor to drain out all of the water that was still in the pipes and stuff like that. And I I just didn't know what to do. I thought it could possibly have been a water pipe burst. I, you know, who knows what it could have been. And it, all the water drained out. Turned out it was just a faulty appliance, so replaced that. Um, the only damage was to the ceiling. Not a single component that I have here had a drop of water on it. I mean, think about all the crap I have in this room, and the water dropped on the rug and not on any of the stuff around it. And even by the time I, I heard it, I had, you know, grabbed some towels, wiped it up, so the rug isn't even stained. So I got so lucky. This thing is going to cost, you know, probably at the end of the day, a couple of grand total, which sucks, but it would have cost like 20 grand if it was a broken pipe that ruined the whole ceiling. I would have had to replace the floorboards. I would have had to rip the whole ceiling off and all. I mean, that would have been nuts, not to mention all of the equipment behind me, some of which isn't even mine, by the way. So it's fact a chunk of it isn't so i would have had to pay to replace that and i would have never been able to afford to replace all of my stuff on there either so yeah i um i kind of ended last week with maybe this is nothing or maybe i'm just being a you know a big scaredy cat and i think the it turned out to be nothing but my fears were absolutely justified because until all the water finished draining out of the ceiling, I had no idea how bad it could have gotten. Was there like 20 gallons of water up there? Was it continuing to fill? Was it something else? Turned out it just, you know, a couple of gallons of water came out, filled into the ceiling, and then just sort of dripped out. So it was just one of those things where 
man, it could have gotten worse. It could have been so much worse. So it's odd to say like, yay, it was only a couple of grand, but I don't really have a couple of extra grand to spend. But just knowing how bad it could have been was was very scary. So it is all fixed. Um, hopefully I'm uh, I'm trying to, to figure out how exactly I could move the appliances around to never worry about this again. One trick that people said, uh, which they, they make this stuff on Amazon, was whatever appliance you have, you know, whether it's a washer and dryer, a refrigerator, dishwasher, whatever else, if it's got water running through it, you can get these pans that are basically sized in your average size of these components, and you put the components on them, and then you slide all of it back, and that way if water comes out, Instead of pooling up in the back or in the middle, it runs right out into the middle of your room, which, of course, that sucks, except no one knew that this was happening. Like, I didn't see any water upstairs. I didn't see any water adjacent to it. Whereas if I had one of these pans, the water would have spilled in the middle of the room and it would have been annoying, but we would have noticed right away. You know, I mean, obviously, if I was away for a week, it could have been disastrous, but like, Little things like that, like a $15 plastic pan to put appliances on so that, you know, you could see it. Uh, that was probably a good idea. And also the where the water runs would now run into a different thing. So even if something disastrous happened, it would be less insane than it would have been. So uh, I got a lot of awesome messages from you all. Thank you all so much for your kind words and your support and all of that. But uh, I did not blow it out of proportion. It just it was showing all the signs of being a disaster, but it turned out to just be shitty. Not a disaster. Nothing got ruined. Didn't bankrupt me doing it. So I am very, very, very lucky. So we could uh, thank the retro gods of Super Mario and Sonic who were, you know, running around in circles, jumping up around me, making sure that that didn't happen to ruin all the equipment. So set me back like a week in videos, but I did take this time to write some more scripts and stuff like that, which are very time consuming. Um, I know people look at spit out scripts in like three hours, and it usually takes me twice that for to make sure I get my thoughts well done. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to get the thoughts up here out of here. So I got to, you know, write and re you know, reproofread, write again, all that stuff. So hopefully I'll have some cool content coming in the next few months, but a little bit of backup. And of course, there's a scramble to get some stuff out before we all meet up at Retro World Expo. And so we'll see what actually gets released before then, but hopefully I made a good use of my time. And uh, yeah, that scared me to death, but nope, we're fine. So hopefully by uh, next week's podcast, everything will be back to normal. And I was even able to hopefully get paint mixed to match so I don't even have to do anything crazy. Although I really would have thought it was fun to have Russ Lyman come over and paint like a warp zone on the ceiling. But I think it'll all match up anyway. So thanks to everybody who sent your words of concern and all that stuff. I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I dodged a huge bullet this time. So thank you all very much. And I will see you at next week's Q&A and maybe the other stuff before that.